picks up. Red light is on, so I'm going to assume that we're live. Okay. Oh, the last letter. Letter in the alphabet. Okay, it is cross. Cross sticks. Also the mark on that sign. Signal, monument, and uh, the mark in Revelation. Okay, may my cry come before you, O Lord. Give me understanding according to your word. May my supplication come before you, deliver me according to your promise. May my lips overflow with praise, for you teach me your decree. May my tongue sing your word, all your commands are right. May your hand be ready to help me, for I have chosen your precepts. Long for your salvation, O Lord, law is my delight. Let me live that I may praise you, your laws sustain me. I have strayed like a lost sheep. Seek your servant, for I have not forgotten your command. Good stuff. Oops, I'm so all caps. Sorry, I hope Sergio doesn't <laughs> yell at me. I did all caps. It's like I'm shouting at him. Um, let's hear. We got that's exactly what he that's thinks. what he thinks. Yes. Okay. We got some prayer requests. Um, Francie, I have not heard. I might have gotten an email, and I haven't had time to check them. But she's in surgery today. She also had some blood tests, which are looking positive after each chemo treatment. Uh, Lisa over in Australia just emailed me without complaining, but she's got all kinds of problems. She's got swollenness under there, and she's got, she just, the poor lady has been going through a lot of trouble. So we're going to keep her in prayer. And then Lenora is just horrifying. She was violently attacked. Somebody broke into her apartment yesterday and, and, you know, sexually attacked her. And so I just called her daughter a few minutes ago and they said she's sleeping and but she's very distressed and so we want to keep her in prayer and then uh we little olivia in scotland was at the beach this morning i think it was this morning might have been last evening but she jabbed her hand on a junkie's needle and so they're very concerned about that so we want to have these people in prayer just when you think you've got your own troubles that are so bad you, you hear about these type of things and uh so yeah it's difficult. We'll keep these people in prayer. And uh, and anyway, let's go there now. Heavenly Father, we thank you for the chance to just come into your presence and to share with you and to uh, uh, lift up people that have it much worse than we often do. And uh, Lord, we would ask that you would be a comfort to all of these people and certainly to be with them in their afflictions or in their physical trials. And we got people that are stressed about life decisions. We got people that have... Uh, financial difficulties, and all different sorts of things. Lord, we just offer these to you, and we ask that you uh, handle them according to your wisdom and just be with these people, Lord. And uh, we certainly pray about this class. We pray that uh, it will be handled properly and that what is said will not be uh, something that uh, would be incorrect. And if it is, that you would bring it to us so that we would have a correct analysis of your precious word. Lord, we just thank you for every good and kind blessing we have, and we thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. And a couple of the blessings we have are in the uh, in the church right now. I've got uh, Mike, who's been staying with me for a few days, and he's going to be unfortunately leaving tomorrow, but he uh, this is third time here, right? Third yep. time coming to visit from South Carolina, and uh, I hope I haven't bored you too much. You know, I sit on the computer and work a lot, and... Uh, so I hope you've had a good time. But uh, if I should kick off suddenly, this is the person you might want to call to uh, check him out to see if uh, 
he wants to uh, take over the church, and then you as a church have to evaluate that. But uh, that would be my recommendation right there, not knowing anything about his preaching abilities, but knowing about his love of the Word and his tender care of the Word. And so there you go. It's good that he's here. Once he's got his beard. Uh, yeah, he's right. got to grow a beard. That's He looks a little, I don't like that uh, clean-shaven look. That just doesn't get it. But uh, And then we also have Brent and Tammy Spray, who I've known Brent for, I don't know how long, years on Facebook. And then I left Facebook. I bailed out. That was, I had somebody else email me and said the same thing. I'm off of all social, uh, whatever you call it, social media. And I'm telling you, she said, I think it was a he or she. I don't remember. It was an email. And I'm just, I'm a little scatterbrained right now because of all that's going on. But best, oh, it was my friend that wrote me a letter. That's what it was. I'm so content. I'm so happy. I'm, and it, that's the way I feel. It's the best decision in my life, getting off of all that junk. But he and his wife are here from... Uh, Henrietta, Texas, the um, uh, Cowboy Church of Henrietta, Texas, and he is one of the associate associate pastors there, and he did a great series on the Book of Ruth, and so uh, I watched him just recently, and uh, if you want the link to that, you let me know. Maybe you can just find it by Cowboy Church, Henrietta, Texas, and then look up Brent Spray, S-P-R-A-Y, and uh, Book of Ruth. You'll really enjoy that. So there you go with that, and that's one of the blessings that I'll be seeing them for a couple days before they bail out on Sunday, Monday, Sunday. Okay, after church. You're going to be here for church. Yeah, that's. I thought that was the case. So let me read this, this day in Christian history, and then we'll get started into the Word. Um, we're going to be in Ephesians 3, 2 when we start. So this is June 3rd, and it says, Knowing his adversary helped him control the situation. Yesterday, we learned that Paul caused a riot in Jerusalem on June 2nd, AD 57. Now, they don't know that. They're just picking a day to fit it into this calendar because the dates, uh, because of the change from the Gregorian calendar to the Julian calendar, there's 11 missing days. There are other things that they cannot definitively identify days. Uh, like, there are just certain days they can't do it, and it, before a certain date, and this is one of them. So they're just making this up for your edification. Uh, 2 AD 57, when he defended himself against false charges brought by the Jews by telling how he met the risen Lord on the road to Damascus. The Roman army commander saved Paul from the mob and held him in custody to determine why he had been accused by the Jews. That's in Acts 21 and 22. Then on June 3rd, AD 57, the Roman commander decided to clarify the situation by having Paul appear before the Sanhedrin, the Supreme Court of Judaism. That's Acts 22:30. Paul began his defense by saying, Brothers, I have always lived before God in all good conscience. Then, just as Jesus had been struck in the face in his trial before the high priest, so now Ananias, the high priest, knowing or known for his overbearing, insolent manner, ordered that Paul be struck in the mouth. And just as Jesus had challenged his attack, Paul retorted to the high priest, God will slap you, you whitewashed wall. What kind of a judge are you to break the law by ordering me struck like that? Then, with, the, with that as a warm-up, Paul went on the offensive, knowing that the Sanhedrin was composed of both Pharisees, who believed vigorously in the resurrection, and Sadducees, who had vigorously, who did not. Paul set them up with brothers. I am a Pharisee, as were all my ancestors, and I am on trial because my hope is in the resurrection of the dead. Then Paul stood back and let them have it at each other. A dispute over the resurrection immediately broke out between the Pharisees and the Sadducees. The shouting escalated and the two opposing sides kept grabbing Paul away one from the other. 
they got so aggressive that the Roman commander was afraid they would tear Paul apart. So he was ordered, he ordered his soldiers to take him back to the fortress. Paul had feared such a reception in Jerusalem, and that night, as he was being held in the Roman barracks in the fortress of Antonia, he felt that he was his worst fears might be realized. He no doubt wondered whether he would ever achieve his goal of going to Rome. Suddenly, at Paul's lowest moment, the Lord himself stood before him and said, Be encouraged, Paul. Just as you have told people about me here in Jerusalem, you must preach the good news in Rome. The Lord was not only giving his approval of Paul's testimony in Jerusalem, but also the assurance that he would testify in Rome. To the Pharisees and Sadducees, the doctrine of the resurrection was merely a hotly contested theological issue, something to fight about. But to Paul, the resurrection of Christ was what changed his life. And now the appearance of his resurrected Lord on this day sealed once again the verity of his faith. And they reflect, what does Christ's resurrection mean to you? Is it just another Christian doctrine or is it your living hope? Regardless of the tumult in Paul's life, he never questioned the reality of the Lord's resurrection because he had seen him personally after he had risen. His first-hand knowledge of the resurrection gave him courage. And they say in 2 Corinthians 4, We know that the same God who raised our Lord Jesus will also raise us with Jesus and present him us to himself. So that's the sure hope of the resurrection. If you're down in the world, if you're having difficult times, all you need to know is that Christ overcame this world. He prevailed. And the fact is that this is just a body of flesh. It, in the end, it really doesn't matter what happens to it because we have a hope that is way beyond this fallen body. And when it comes, we're not ever going to think of the things that happened here again. So if you can keep that long-term perspective during difficult times, you'll be in the sweet spot. I'm going to put this over here because it makes a lot of blinking noises. We got a new app and uh, we're working on it right now, something my brother and I, so I just don't want to keep going blink, blink, blink while we're It'll still do it. It'll just do it over there. So, all right, let's see here. We have um, Ephesians is where we're in. Okay, no, I'm not going to say it because the sermon's still eight weeks away. Mike knows and one other person knew before Mike. But other than that, there's something that is from the one Corinthians study that I added in today. It won't be on any video because we've already done one Corinthians, but Great stuff. I'm telling you what, just wonderful. I actually sent it to my friend Wade, who does the PDF copies of things for me. I said, would you do this? I know it's a lot of trouble, but I had to add it into the commentary, and it means, you know, re-uploading it to the website and all this kind of stuff. But, wow, the Word of God just never ends. It's just, it's so exciting. It's just so wonderful. But we'll we'll hear about that in eight weeks, so I won't bother you with it now. Let's see here. we got to... Book of Ephesians, it comes after Romans, and after Corinthians, and after Galatians, and then we before Philippians. Okay, here we are. We're in Ephesians 3, 2. You might as well just start at the beginning. Uh, one. For this reason, I call prisoner of Christ Jesus for the sake of Gentiles. Surely, you have heard about the administration of God's grace that was given to me for you. Oh. Okay, yeah, no, I, I didn't realize that you'd read it all the way through because it's a little different. If indeed you have heard of the dispensation of the grace of God, which was given to me for you. So it did, but I just, I didn't even 
pay attention to it. So that's my fault. All that dead silence that everybody just had to endure through, that was my fault. Um, You know, one more before I give you an analysis on 3-2 is that we have another person we can pray for is Steve, who has been attending our class for quite a while. He comes six months a year, maybe not quite that long, but he... uh, uh, he could use some prayer. I won't give all the details, except that his business partner of many years uh, died just this past Saturday or Friday night, I think it was. And uh, so you, if you're thinking of praying for the people we've mentioned, add Steve into it because he needs, not. it doesn't just affect him, it affects a lot of other issues beyond his own personal heart. So we want to pray for uh, the family of John who uh, lost a husband and a father and all of these things. Okay, um, 3-2, sorry about that, I just came to mind right now. Uh, to, main con- to maintain context, verse 2 should be read with verse 1, which Jim just did, but I'll read it again. For this reason I, Paul, the prisoner of Christ Jesus, for you Gentiles, if indeed you have heard of the dispensation of the grace of God which was given to me for you. The word translated as if here does not imply uncertainty. Rather, it is a statement of affirmation. The NIV translates this as, surely you have heard, in order to more closely translate the thought. Charles Ellicott says that it is a half-ironical reference to a thing, not doubtful. Understanding this correctly, Paul's words of verse 1 fall into their proper place. He noted that he was the prisoner of Christ Jesus for you Gentiles. His position as a prisoner does not affect the dispensation of the grace of God, which was given to him, okay? He was selected as the apostle to the Gentiles, okay? And his position was being fulfilled through the circumstances which occurred to him, even being a prisoner of Christ Jesus. His words, a prisoner of Christ Jesus. The words which was given to me are not referring to the dispensation, but to the grace of God, okay? Read it again, and you'll see that. It says here, um, for this reason, I, Paul, the prisoner of Christ Jesus, for you Gentiles, if indeed you have heard of the dispensation of the grace of God, which God was given, uh, of the grace of God, which was given to me for you. So it's not speaking of the dispensation, it's speaking of the grace of God. Okay, anyway, so there you go with that. And um, the words, I read that, the word dispensation will begin to be what is described in verse 3. As grace is being described here, a question arises as to what this grace is referring to. Is it the grace of being granted his apostleship, or is it the grace of God for salvation, which is found in the gospel message? Although scholars are divided on this, what seems most likely is that he is speaking of the grace bestowed upon him for his apostleship. First, the context of his words are that he is a prisoner for Christ. Secondly, he uses the same idea in Romans 1 and elsewhere to define his apostleship. So it only makes sense that he would be doing the same thing here, such as in Romans chapter 1. Let me take you there where he says this. My head is ringing like a bell today, so if I'm a little off of my regular already offness, it's because my my head is ringing like a bell. Okay, I don't know. It's just, it's, it just is. I've got a bad ear, which has been going for months, but I don't think that's it. It's just something ringing up at the top of my head. Through him, we have received grace and apostleship for obedience to the faith among all nations for his name, among whom you also are the called of Jesus Christ. So he ties it in right there with his apostleship. So that's probably what is being referred to. 
Paul understood that his calling was solely of grace and had been given to him for the purpose of bringing the message of the gospel to the Gentile people of the world. It is this message which is found in the, as he says, the dispensation which formed the time, which, yes, formed the time his apostolic office, the time of his apostolic office. The word dispensation is the Greek word. I bet you Greek, uh, Burke knows it. Do you know what the word? What? Stewardship. But do you know what it is in the Greek? It does mean stewardship. It's oikonomia. Okay. It gives the idea of the management of the affairs of a household. As you said, stewardship. Paul had just been speaking of the household of God in the last verses of the previous chapter. The adding of the Gentiles at this time in history meaning the period which we consider the Gentile-led church age is the dispensation which Paul is referring to now. Let me make a note on something right here. I want to do this so I have this for a little later. Okay, I want to make a note there. Sorry about that. Okay, so uh, speaking of the household of God in the last verses of the previous chapter, the adding of the Gentiles at this time in history, meaning the period which we consider the Gentile-led church age is the dispensation which Paul is referring to now. As noted above, the dispensation will be described more fully in the coming verses, okay? Life application, very short commentary on the verse. It is, a, it is very wise to not be captivated by a single translation of the Bible. If one is, they will inevitably come to erroneous conclusions about what is being said in the original languages. Twice in the past 24 hours, I've had people come to me with questions about translations. One of them was, is the Septuagint better than the Masoretic text, or is the vice versa? And then the second one was somebody sending me a commentary on somebody's analysis of the Greek. Why are there so many translations of the Bible? And the guy gave his uh, commentary. And the fact is that the more translations that you read, the better off you're going to be. If you read one translation, if you're captivated by it, and there's a certain group of people that are captivated by their particular translation, your theology, if you're studious in your Bible, and that's all you use, your theology is going to be wrong, okay? The Sabbath, for example, if you go to the King James Version, you go to the first instances of the Sabbath as it's introduced in Exodus 16, okay? It's never mentioned before that. It is introduced then, and uh, there is either, a, I don't remember, so I'm just going to say that there is either an article before it that is lacking the Sabbath, or there is not an article, and I think that's what it is. It just says Sabbath to the Lord, but the King James Version says the Sabbath to the Lord. And that is why we have people like Seventh-day Adventists. It's because they have taken that and they have misunderstood what is being said. And if you follow what's going on in the Sabbath with the article before it, throughout all of the Sabbath verses, you will understand what's going on. But if you stick with your King James Version, that's why we have people in the Seventh-day Adventists, and that's why we have people that insist that you have to observe a Sabbath in other denominations as well. And that is just one example of countless examples of why your theology is going to be bad. Best thing for you to do is to read lots of translations and to think on them, and if you have a serious question about something, I don't understand why is this translated this way, email somebody that knows at least how to access the Greek and the Hebrew, and they can send you there, and you can do your own study, or maybe they're versed enough where they can sit down and explain that to you themselves, okay? But to uh, not do that, to not pursue the Bible in that manner is going to lead you down a bad path. It's like sticking with one preacher, no matter what he says, he's right, and I just am going to believe my pastor Paul, okay? That is not the way to handle your theology, okay? 
you check everything. And I tell you after this class, every single week, you know, go check for yourself. Make sure that you are being prudent in your theology, because if I'm wrong, you're stuck with what I have taught you. And I don't want that, because if I'm wrong, I want it to be right. And so it's up to you, but that starts with one translation. One translation is where it starts with people. I'm just going to stick with the ESV forever. I like the way it's written. Or I'm going to stick with the NIV, and you're going to have problems. It's inevitable because translation is such a large thing. It's a huge, huge accomplishment for somebody or some group to translate the Bible. And, you know, I, I think I've said this. I may not have. I might have said it on Sunday, but you can actually tell. I do an evaluation of the King James Version every single verse when I'm going through the sermons and through my daily commentaries, and you can actually tell when there is a change in the translator because you can see how he translates differently than the person that translated the previous passage. You just know. I'm telling you, it becomes obvious if you do this enough. And one person, you can see how uncaring they were about consistency. And then the next guy will come along and be consistent, but he won't be consistent with the next people. And the um, you know, the committee that edits it, the editing committee won't check that. All they're doing is checking for style. And all of a sudden, you've got words that are translated differently that have exactly the same context or that are translated the same, which are completely different words and have different contexts. And so it's a really big study. You can't be too down on people that, uh, you know, don't know these differences, but you want to be sure yourself to read lots of translations, to think on them when you come to something that you see is wrong then you want to either check yourself if you know how to or have somebody show you where to go or have them, if they're capable, uh, give you an analysis of it themselves, okay? That's my recommendation. I know I said that twice, but I repeated it so that it would be drummed into you. If you want me to say it a third time, I will. Those are the points that I think you should have. Yeah, the people that wrote the King James said exactly the same thing I just said in different words, but right in the original preface, and that's one thing that I would recommend to King James only people, is to read the original preface to the King James Version. It's not the one in your Bible today, which is this long. It's about 11 very, very cramped pages of minute detail. Okay, it's a very, as a matter of fact, he says, we've gotten a little long in our uh, introduction, and so, uh, and he went on for another page or two after that. I mean, it's just very long, and I'm going to tell you, it's real hard to read because it's ye old King James for, uh, English, but it's from a scholarly aspect. It's not edited by the group, so you're, it's not like you're reading the Bible, which is already hard. It's got so many obsolete words in it, but it's, it's just a man that is telling you what he thinks about Bible translations, and he says uh, reading many translations is what the wise people do. It's very very uh, poignant about that, and a lot of other issues. As a matter of fact, um, I've got a commentary that I did on the preface of the King James Version, and I talk about all of the things that argue against King James Onlyism. So it's a wonderful thing. It's very hard to read, but I recommend you take the time and read it, and just you get, might have to read it like 37 times before you get what the guy is saying, because it's just hard to read. But there you go with that. Okay, so um, uh, Yes, be wise, study and show yourself approved, and do not get swayed into a one-version-only belief. I'm so adamant about this, and you wonder why I bring this issue up all the time. I bring it up in sermons. I bring it up when I email people. The reason why I do is because I was stuck in a King James-only church, okay? I know what these people do, and I know how they... And plus, when I don't use the King James Version in my studies, I'm often threatened. I'm often abused verbally. Uh, I've been told so many times that I'm going to hell that I, I just, it's unbelievable. 
these people's mindset. It's like flat earth mindset. So, and if you're a flat earther, suck it up. Okay. So, get, I, to, go, get to know a King James first. Yeah. Yeah. Exactly. I just You'll get along swimmingly well. Yeah. It's it's just not sound theology. It's you know what it is. It is cheap theology. I'm going to do this, and so I don't have to study. I'm just going to believe this, and that's easy. And nobody reads the King James Version anymore. And if they do, it's because I'm talking about really studying it, and I'm talking about people that start reading it in church. I'm not talking about the people that teach it and all that kind of stuff. I'm just talking about somebody that has their King Jimmy Bible, and they go home, and they set it on the uh, the counter, and they might read the Psalms once in a while, but it's not a Bible that you would use for proper study anymore. It's just not. So, And if somebody emails me and says, I use it all the time for my study, that's fine. That's you. I'm saying in general, okay? Most people that get that version of the Bible do not do heavy studies in it anymore. They just don't because it, you have to learn another language in order to read the King James Version. There are so many words in there that are completely obsolete. Anyway, I'll get off of that because I've been on it long enough. Three, three. That is the mystery made known to me by Revelation, as I have already written for you. Okay. Exact opposite, but it says the same thing. How by revelation he made known to me the mystery, as I've briefly written already. Okay, the words of this verse note the way that Paul learned of the dispensation he mentioned in the previous verse. It was by revelation. The words are emphatic in the Greek. It was not by man's wisdom that this was made known, nor could it have been discerned by man. Rather, it was a mystery. Okay, I see I've got a spelling error there. Let me make a little note on that. As noted in Ephesians 1.9, the word mystery carries with it more than what we would think of as a mere mystery that cannot be known. Although it does imply that which is unknown, it also means that which has, now made, which has been now made known by God's revelation. And so this mystery is that which is entirely unknowable except and unless it is revealed by God. One of the mysteries was the Gentile church. He calls it a mystery. This is now made evident to the world, but nobody ever would have thought of it. And Paul said, this is something now that is now made manifest, okay? He called the rapture a mystery. It's something that nobody would have had any idea about. You never could have gotten it looking at the stars. You couldn't have gotten it by weighing, you know, certain elements. You couldn't have gotten it by working as a plumber. There's nothing you could have ever done in human uh, interactions with the things that they do that would have brought you to the knowledge of the rapture. Paul had to reveal it. And once it was revealed, it is now no longer a mystery. So a mystery is something that is hidden by God until the time it's revealed. And then from there, and we got them in Revelation, you know, the mystery, okay? So these things are explained in Revelation, but they are not yet fully revealed until they come about. Anyway, so this mystery, and so this mystery is that which is entirely unknowable, except and unless it is revealed by God. When I say by God, I mean by God through his people or through his actions in redemptive history. When it is so revealed, it is a mystery made known. The rapture is no longer a mystery. The date of it may be, you know, some of the circumstances may be, but the fact that there will be a rapture is no longer a mystery. Okay? What was unknown and unknowable to man, apart from it being revealed by God, was made known through this special revelation to Paul. This is something he notes in Galatians 1.12 as well, and it might have been what I was just talking about. I think it was. Anyway, let's see here. Galatians 1 verse 12. It says, I'll go to 11, but I make known to you, brethren, that the gospel which was preached by me is not according to man, 
for I neither received it from man, nor was I taught it, but it came through the revelation of Jesus Christ. So he wasn't talking about the mystery there. He was talking about how he got his information by revelation from Jesus Christ. Okay. He finishes this verse with a parenthetical thought, as I have briefly written already. This is not referring to another letter which is now lost. Rather, it is referring to what he has already said in this letter. The thought was introduced in Ephesians 1.9 and explained through 1.14. So it says there in 1, we'll start in 1.7. In him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of sins according to the riches of his grace, which he made, abound, made to abound toward us in all wisdom and prudence. 9. Having made known to us the mystery of his will, according to his good pleasure, which he purposed in himself, that in the dispensation of the fullness of the times, he might gather together in one all things in Christ, both which are in heaven, excuse me, and which are on earth in him. In him also we have obtained an inheritance, being predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will, that we who first trusted in Christ should be to the praise of his glory. And then he says in 13 and 14, in him you also trusted, after you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, in whom also, having believed, you were sealed with the Holy Spirit of promise. And so it is the bringing together of Jew and Gentile into one body, and that is the mystery which is now revealed, and to prove that this is something that affects each person as an individual in Christ, he gives you the deposit, the guarantee, which is the sealing of the Holy Spirit. So that's what he's referring to there now. One more person just came to mind. She's on the mend, but we'll include, if you're thinking of it, Rhoda in your prayers. She's had the flu for the past couple of days, and she's been miserable. So get that out, too. And uh, she's on the mend. She's looking better, and they went outside today and walked around. But uh, keep her in prayer just so that they can get their work done, because they got things coming up, hopefully, in the next week, which will be difficult on her. He then expanded, after reading um, 1.9 through 1.14, he then expanded on it in chapter 2. As well, the mystery that he is referring to is not the gospel specifically. Rather, it is the fact that the Gentiles are also part of the gospel. They are now included in the rights and the benefits of the commonwealth. Did you say that? Is that what you said? Covenant. Well, it was close. It began with the cuss sound, so you're, you're, you get half a point. Okay, commonwealth of Israel. He is, And we are brought into the new covenant. That is true, so that's not untrue. Uh, this is my blood of the covenant, which is shed for you, and, you know, on and on. Okay, so we are a part of the covenant. The covenant was made with Israel, the house of Israel, and the house of Judah, and it is applies to them, but we are brought into that covenant by being brought into the commonwealth of Israel. We get all of the rights and benefits that they get, even though we never had any part in the law, the history of Israel, or any of those things. We are brought in simply by God's grace through faith through faith in the gospel, and that is it. Okay, they are now included in the rights and benefits of the commonwealth of Israel. He is the apostle, Paul, who was chosen to transmit this mystery to the world and to give the epistles which govern this dispensation of time. Once again, this does not mean that Peter doesn't apply to us. This does not mean that Hebrews doesn't apply to us. What it means is that Paul's words are specifically for the instruction and conduct of the Gentile-led church, but we can be edified by Hebrews there are verses in there which certainly include us in what Paul is talking about, but he's specifically talking to the Hebrews so they understand the workings of what is going on. 
when we get to Hebrews, it's a great, great book. I just, I tell you, I always tell people, read Hebrews eight or nine times, read, I'm sorry, Romans eight or nine times, and then go and read Hebrews eight or nine times, and you will have a greater understanding of what God is doing. You've got the constitution of Christianity, you've got all of the work that Christ did, as it's explained in Romans, and then you've got how that pertains to what he was being prefigured in the Old Testament, how he is the fulfillment of all of those things in Hebrews is. What a masterpiece the book of Hebrews is. It's just wonderful. Anyway, uh, we're brought in. It governs this dispensation of time. Okay, um, let's see here. Life application. Without studying Paul's epistles, the message of Christ's work for the Gentiles will be, not maybe, will be completely misunderstood. This is why he is so maligned by Judaizers and others who want to reinsert the law into their theology. Or they just take Paul and they don't malign him and they twist his words and they take verses completely out of their intended context and they ignore all of the things that argue against what they're saying and they put it out there and people that don't read their Bible and don't study and don't check what they're told in a study are led down a primrose path. And that's why I say you are responsible for your theology. I'm more accountable for what I say, but you are responsible for your theology. If I'm wrong and you accept what I say on any premise, that's your fault. That is your fault, okay? It's my fault for teaching it wrong, but it's your fault for not checking, okay? You need to make sure that you don't trust anybody, even your favorite pastor, until you have checked it out. It's just, it's the smart thing to do. Okay, diminishing the writings of Paul are the only option for these people, or I should say it's one of two, also twisting the words of Paul. Thus, such people diminish the word of God. They are heretics who are to be rejected. Stand on Paul's epistles for your proper church age doctrine. All right, I feel very bad for people that get into that type of stuff. Most people that get into a church, want it, they're going to church for a reason. And there's obviously, we all get into something for a reason, whether we go out and read tarot cards or if we go over to a Hindu temple, we're doing it for a reason. But uh, it, it's, I have a friend that uh, attended a Methodist church for a long time. He played in the band. And now he goes to a Buddhist temple every week because the Methodist church never taught him anything. Okay? And it's sad. It's just sad that, you know, people just accept things. You know, the Methodist church says, well, there are different paths that lead to God, and people believe that. And that's part of what they're into nowadays. There's this syncretism and this pluralism that they're involved with in the Methodist church and other churches. And they got their little wheels that they walk around out in the uh, garden, you know, spirit wheels and all that nonsense. I'm telling you, well, Sunday, an abomination to the Lord. Go read Deuteronomy 18, 9 through 14 and just see if it pertains to anything in your life. Okay, because we'll talk about it in, in detail on a Sunday. but. These are things that are right there in the world, and they're right there in churches right now. Okay, we'll, we'll stop right now, and we'll just go there, just because I don't want you to get to the end of the class and say, oh, I forgot to read that. By Sunday morning, you'll forget, and then shame on you. So we'll do it right now. All right, it's uh, 9 through 14. So this is an abomination to the Lord. <laughs> when you come into the land which the Lord your God is giving you, you shall not learn to follow the abominations of those nations. There shall not be found among you anyone who makes his son or his daughter pass through the fire, or one who practices witchcraft, or a soothsayer, or one who interprets omens, or a sorcerer, or one who conjures a spell, or a medium, or a spiritist, 
or one who calls up the dead. I'm going to go through every one of those in detail so you know what that means. Not just, oh, what's a spiritist? Because it can mean different things to different people. What does the Hebrew mean? And how do you avoid that? And are there examples of that anywhere in Scripture? I'm going to give you all of that. For all who do these things are an abomination to the Lord, and because of these abominations, the Lord your God drives them out from before you. You shall be blameless before the Lord your God. For these nations which you will dispossess, listen to soothsayers and diviners. But as for you, the Lord your God has not appointed such for you. Okay, that's what we're going to go through on Sunday. We're just continuing on through Deuteronomy. Now, I have a question for you. I may not answer it for you right now, but I want you to think about it. It does say in the Old Testament that people that eat, for example, swine's flesh are an abomination to the Lord. Okay, what's the difference? Can anybody think of the difference? Because he just said that word, toeva in Hebrew. All right, what's the difference? The New Testament, they told us that that's... Are you saying that the Old Testament says an abomination is something, and in the New, it just ends? Well, what about the ones I just read you? Sue's saying, is that an abomination to the Lord still? Yes, but Why? it was in the New Testament. Okay, yeah, well, not specifically. There are a lot of those things I just read that don't specifically say that. Why? Well, that's it, you know, and I don't address that in there, but that is true. But why is something that's an, uh, said to be an abomination here and something that's said to be... That's exactly it. That is exactly it. Does a spiritist picture anything in the New Testament? No, a spiritist is a spiritist. A person that reads charms is a charm reader. But remember the Leviticus 11 sermons? Remember the Deuteronomy, I don't remember what chapter it was, when we went again over the dietary laws? Do you remember that those things pictured something else? Okay? Remember the pig pictured a person, we'll say a professor. Okay? A person with head knowledge but no heart knowledge for the Lord. Every single animal in Leviticus 11 and those that were detailed in the Deuteronomy dietary laws pictured something in the New Testament some person, some type of bad theology, every one of them, they all pictured something that is revealed in the New Testament in typology. Spiritists and wizards don't picture anything in typology. They are just an abomination to the Lord. And I'll define why. I'm telling you this now. I hate to give away stuff on sermons. I don't like when people read my sermons before Sunday, but that's okay. I'm just letting you know that if you do that, please don't do that. Those belong to me until they are out. Until they are out, they belong to me. And after that, they belong to the world. Don't, no, no, I don't want to. I'm just saying my piece. Okay, so do not read those sermons if they are forwarded to you. They are for you to print off and to put off until Sunday morning because they still belong to me. And if I want to change something, I will change it. Or if I have an error, you can tell me afterwards. But do not read those sermons. They belong to me until they no longer belong to me. And when they are out, they belong to everyone. Out of my mouth. I, I will present them. And it says right there at the very top when I send those out, this is not to be read until it is presented on this day at the Superior Word. And I have people constantly emailing me about those sermons and saying, Charlie, blah, blah, blah. Don't do that, okay? They are not yours. They are mine. They belong to me and the Lord until I give them, okay? So, yes, I'm upset about that. Um, having said that, 
and it happens all the time. I mean, this isn't just like one or two times. It's like that that doesn't mean what it means. Okay, so I have all kinds of puckered up faces here right now. I, I, I have all kinds of puckered up faces. Okay, so having said that, I will go into detail and explain those things on Sunday, why it is. But that was exactly right. She gets a Maserati to drive home tonight because it's the typology. There's no typology in these people. Yeah, well, you were listening, okay? Or you read my notes. No, she. I know. I know she. I know she did not because I haven't sent them out yet. They don't go out until tomorrow. But um, there you go. I, I, I do at times make changes in those things, and if I do, I want people to know why I've done it, etc. And so it's it's just something that is it's meaningful to me. So let me have my meaningful thing. Okay. So I think we're in three four. We are. Okay, three, four. In reading this, then, you will be able to understand my insight into the mystery of Christ. Okay, I'm telling you, that is almost identical, and I'm not going to read it again. Okay, the Greek words, by which, indicate what he has already written. This is more evident when the previous verse is taken together with this one. How that by revelation he made known to me the mystery... As I have br briefly written already, by which, when you read, you may understand my knowledge in the mystery of Christ. Paul has been writing concerning the revelation by which Christ made known to him the mystery. In reading this, he says that he expects his reader would understand his knowledge, his words, knowledge in the mystery of Christ. Again, the word mystery is used in the sense of something which is previously hidden but which is now made known through God's special revelation. Paul was the one chosen to receive the unveiling of this mystery. Once received, he has then shared it with those to whom he was sent, meaning the Gentiles. Now, once again, Paul also spoke to Jews. No problem with that. Everybody understand that? He usually went to a town, and the first place he went to was the synagogue. That's right. And then he talked to them, and they always kicked him out, and then he started, okay, I'm going out. I've done my job with you people. I'm now going to the Gentiles. He did it again and again. What's that? He went to jail. Yeah, he went to jail most of the time. That's right. But when he got to Rome, he did the same thing that he always does. He talked to his brethren. They said, we haven't heard anything about this. We've been hearing about this, this doctrine, though. Tell us about it. And so they came and talked to him. He talked to him for a while, and the book of Acts ends exactly as half of the chapters in the book of uh, Acts end when Paul leaves an area. The Jews reject him, and he goes to the Gentiles. Well, that's how the book of Acts ends, okay? And so Paul is the apostle to the Gentiles, but it was not exclusively to the Gentiles. As a matter of fact, in Acts 9, I'm pretty sure it's Acts 9, when he um, uh, was given his commission, let's go there just so that I want to make sure I'm not wrong in this. I don't want to say something. That's right. That's exactly right. Acts 9, and Jesus, Jesus um, said, Go, for he is a chosen vessel of mine to bear my name before Gentiles, kings, and the children of Israel. For I will show him how many things he must suffer for my name's sake. He was apostle to all people, but his main ministry was to the Gentiles. Okay? The difference with Peter and Paul is that Peter's main ministry was to the Jews. Jews. Okay? Now, the Jews are... Peter's main ministry. But did he speak to Gentiles? Yes. In Acts chapter 10. Okay, the reason why I'm highlighting this again is so that you can absolutely be clear that there is no such doctrine that is sound called hyperdispensationalism, where it divides two gospels, one for the Jews and one for the Gentiles. That is a heresy. 
Okay, you need to stay as far away from that doctrine as you can. They both spoke to Jews. They both spoke to Gentiles. They, uh, 1 Corinthians 15 says they spoke the same gospel. Okay, Peter says that Paul's words are easily misunderstood and people twist them to their own destruction, etc., etc. It might not say destruction. I don't know what word he uses there. But you get the point. There is one gospel and their main ministry was either to the Jews, Peter, or to the Gentiles, Paul. Paul, yes. Okay, so you, I, I just want to highlight that again because this is something that infects the church in such a damaging way. It's such cheap theology. It is anti-Semitic also. It, it, everything about hyper-dispensationalism is bad. They start out very good, and then they immediately go down Apostasy Avenue. It's very, very sad. Yes, you got something, Burke? They've distorted. They've distorted. They've di thank you. They didn't, not destruction, they've distorted. And they do that. They take the word and they distort it, just like the Hebrew Roots, roots Movement people do. And so there you go. Okay, Paul, I'm going to read the last sentence again. Once received, he had then shared it with those to whom he was sent, meaning the Gentiles. He did this both verbally as he traveled and in writing as well, in order to support the message that he proclaimed. We are the continued recipients of those writings as they are included in the pages of Scripture. It would be appalling to hand a Bible to a Jew. Okay, I'm, I, you're a Jew. I'm telling you about Jesus, and you suddenly break down in tears in front of me and say, I, my Messiah, okay? And I hand you a Bible and say, I want you to learn about him. I don't want you to read any of Paul's letters, though, okay? Because he's written to the Jews. Can you imagine saying that to somebody? That's what hyper-dispensationalism, in essence, does. That's, in essence, what it does. Or if you speak to a Gentile, you say, well, I don't want you to read the he book of Hebrews. I don't want you to read, you know, Jude or John or Peter. Just skip all that. All I want you to do is stick with Paul. And that's what they do. They stick to Paul and they just ignore it. Yeah. They've cut the Bible down to such a limited little thing. There's nothing left of it. But that is what they're doing. They're saying, don't take the whole counsel of God. Just take this portion of the counsel of God and read that. And that is for you. You're a Jew. You take these epistles. Out. I'm a Gentile and I'm going to take these and we'll be happy. We don't need to intermingle. That is exactly what they're doing. Quite militantly. That's right. Okay. He did it both verbally as he traveled and in his writing as well in order to support the message he proclaimed. We are the continued recipients of those writings as they are included in the pages of Scripture. The mystery of Christ is now open and available to be read and understood by any who will pay heed. For Jews who reject the New Testament, they believe that they alone are the recipients of God's Word, both in writing and in the application of it to themselves as a people. For those who accept the New Testament but diminish the importance of and twist the meaning of Paul's epistles, the mystery is not properly understood. Thus, the grace of Christ is often missed, and there tends to be a reinsertion of the Old Testament laws into their theology. Both of these are heretical. You've gone down heresy highway, okay? We don't want that. Paul's reception of the revelation of this mystery is what opens up the truth of the church age to the people of the world. It is Paul who did this. And when we go into the Old Testament, which we've been now in for 10 years, almost 10 full years, it's June, July, September, October, three more months, and we'll be 10 full years from our first Deuteronomy, I'm sorry, Genesis sermon 10 years ago. We're not even out of Deuteronomy yet, and it has been all about Jesus. And most of it has been about things that apply specifically to what God is doing in the church in the dispensations, in people that are 
were never a part of what God was doing under the law, okay? Paul opened all of that up to us. We would not know those things without Paul's writings. We'd be stuck in uh, in abyss. But Jew and Gentile together can see that. The Jew can leave his pride behind him and say, I understand that I was just a stepping stone, meaning the law, in the redemptive purposes of God. And the Gentile can stop being anti-Semitic and saying, well, you know, they've got their own thing, we've got our own thing. And they can see that if we are in Christ, we are two made one. We are one in Christ. And everything God was doing was to redeem the people of the world. Okay, so there you go with that. Um, uh, I read that. Thus, the grace of Christ is often missed, and there tends to be a reinsertion of the Old Testament laws into their theology. Both of these are heretical. Paul's reception of the mystery of this mystery is what opens up the truth of the church age to the people in the world of the world, Jew and Gentile alike, equally share in the finished work of Christ. Their inclusion into this body, Jew and Gentile, is solely an act of grace, and it comes only, only by faith in what he has done. It's not going to be obtained any other way. No person is going to work their way to heaven. It's an infinite climb. You've only got a certain number of days, and they're not infinite, and you're not going to make it. Just put all of that behind you and trust in Christ. Life application, a thorough study of Paul's words, and then the application of them to our Christian walk is expected of every believer. They are an integral part of what God has done through Jesus Christ. Without them, there's only confused theology and an improper walk, a walk which is not a faith in Christ's finished work, okay? We need to just stick to the simple gospel, and then we need to evaluate the Bible by the lens of Christ. No other lens is going to work. Nothing. That's why the Jews haven't gotten it yet, because they have not looked at it in the lens of Christ. And you read the commentaries by these people about, like, the dietary laws, they're so far from what God is telling us. They're so far from it that it's hard to imagine. And to this day, you go to Jewish houses, not all of them, but many of them have two sinks. They'll have one for meat products and one for dairy products. It, it's just insane. Everything is just, nothing makes sense. None of it makes sense because they haven't come to it understanding that Christ is the resolution of all of these types and shadows. All of them. I was saying to uh, Mike here today, I, I think I said it in this class a week or two ago. I'm so excited about Genesis, I'm sorry, Deuteronomy 21. What a great chapter. It is so filled with Christ. There's five little sections in it, five separate sections. The last two are kind of speaking together, but they're, they're, they're separate. Every one of them pictures Christ. Go read them and think on it. When we get to the sermons, I want to see if anybody comes up with that. It's just marvelous stuff that's in there. It's, what a wonderful passage. So far, I think it's probably the most Christological passage I've seen in Deuteronomy. Obviously, the dietary laws are, they all point to Christ and what we're doing in the church, but we already did that in Leviticus. So it's kind of repeat with a lot of extra, you know, detail. But I'm telling you, Deuteronomy 21, it's just, oh, it's unbelievable. The first sermon, I did not give a lot of detail on it. I just give the, the general, this is the theme because it's a long sermon, and it would have, I could have typed pages on the, the, the typology, but I didn't. It's just going to be a, a, a quick brush stroke, and I do hope everybody gets it. The other ones will be probably more detailed. Anyway, and now I'm into chapter 22, starting this past week or so. Another great chapter so far. Okay, we're in 3-5. Was not made known to men other generations, as has now been revealed by the Spirit to God's holy apostles and prophets. Okay, yours says generations. This one says ages. Okay, you could get stuck on a single word 
and one of them might not be correct for some reason. A generation kind of implies humanity. You know, this is the generations of Adam. This is the generations of Noah. Now, there is, at the beginning, the generations of the heavens and the earth, okay? But you think of humanity. Ages, you think of times, okay? So there's a little difference. I don't know if it's a big difference, okay? But there is a difference. Read different translations, and you say, I wonder why it says ages there and generations there. And then you can sit down and you can think about it, okay? Unless you just believe that... Your version is the only version and nothing else will do. Then you're not going to do that. and You're probably going to miss something. Okay. So, which in other ages was not made known to the sons of men, as it has now been revealed by the Holy Spirit to his holy apostles and prophets. Speaking about that, what I just said about the words and stuff. One of the arguments, I read this today. Somebody sent me something or maybe Mike and I were talking about it. I don't remember. But one of the arguments, it was in that, that thing the guy said is one of the arguments that King James only people will use, or, you know, if you're in the Aramaic Bible, the only Bible, okay, the Septuagint. Some people only read the Septuagint. This is God's word. The Greek translation is it, okay? You get into that kind of thinking. And one of the arguments that they use is that, well, if there is a different word in this translation, and there's a different word in this translation, okay, and God's word does not change. Every word of God is pure, etc. right? Well, then that means that one of these can't be God's word. Does anybody know what the problem with that analysis is? Neither of those words were the original words. Neither was the original. They're both translations, and they're both based on man's interpretation. So to say that means that the originals are not God's word, which is where that came from. That's it. You're exactly right. Everything that they do is fallacious in their thinking. Everything. If you can get through the fallacy, which you probably won't, but if you can you'll be able to convince them that they're thinking incorrectly. But it's like talking to a flat earther. You're not going to change their minds. They've got it in their head, and this is... Are you flat earthers? Good. Oh, good. Here, I'm talking about... I can, I can see one and start throwing rocks at me or something. I knew you weren't. I was just kidding, of course, but uh, yes. But I am. Yeah. I don't care about you. speaks to people. He says, the ages don't... Things aren't made known to ages. That's right. But they are based on oh, generations. Okay, well, then we, what we would have to do is look up the Greek, which I may have in here. If I don't have it in here, then we could look it up. And if it's the word Ionos, then it is ages. And so it's not generations. But if it's the word genere, I think, to generate, then uh, I think that's the word, then it would be that. So we would have to check the Greek. And I'm not going to do that right now. But if somebody sends me an email, I can check. Or, yeah, Mike can check it out. He can do it. He's sitting there on Bible Hub right now. Instead of paying attention to us, he's doing his own Bible study, which is a sign of a person that really wants to know the word. Um, you know, a minute ago I said, don't read the, uh, the the sermons before Sunday when I give them. That doesn't apply to any one particular person in here. That applies to lots of people that get those. Okay, lots. I know that. So I just, I, I, ugh. Okay, we'll go on now. Now that I've said, I want anybody to think I'm speaking to them personally because I'm not. I'm speaking to pretty much a lot of people. Okay, go ahead. Uh, well, no, we're in three five. I got to evaluate the verse that we now read directly to me about that. Well, I have talked to you because you're the one that sends them out. So, yeah. So that's no big deal at all. Okay, the word which I'm going to read it again because I kind of got off on two tangents. Which in other ages was not made known. The word which is referring to the mystery of verses three and four. This mystery is the work of God in Christ for Jew and Gentile, which Paul has been speaking of and which he will continue to explain. This mystery was not made known in other ages. That's Paul's words. God has worked through dispensations or ages 
in order to affect his redemptive purposes for fallen man. Did you look that verse up? It's Genea. It's Genea, so it should be generations. Ionis is ages, and so it's Genea. And I don't remember what word I said, Genera. I, I think I mispronounced it, but okay. So it's it should be probably generations, or maybe some comparable translation to generations. That would just be better. Okay, to affect his redemptive purposes for fallen man. God is working out a schedule, a plan, okay? In the previous ages, or we should maybe say generations, there was one line of people specifically chosen to lead humanity to the Messiah. One line. You can get that from Genesis chapter, begins in chapter 5. Remember, Adam had a son named Seth. Seth had, okay, Adam lived 130 years, had a son named Seth, and then he lived 930 years and Adam died. Seth, okay, and it goes on all the way down to, I think, Noah's the last one, okay? So that's... Yeah. Now, we knew at the beginning, Adam, and then we had Cain and Abel, but you don't have much after that. But you get to Genesis 5, and you see that God is suddenly doing something. He's picking a group of people. They're not the Nephilim, okay? They are the line of Cain. They are the sons of God, okay? I defended that in a sermon recently. I know that it's correct. I don't need to hear about the Nephilim being angels sleeping with people. It's incorrect, okay? So, so don't send me another email on that one after I said that, okay? These are sons of God by faith, and we are adopted into the faith and called sons of God now in the New Testament as well. Okay, however, rather than focusing solely on, uh, did I finish that sentence? Yes, in the previous ages, there was one line of people specifically chosen to lead humanity to the Messiah. However, rather than focusing solely on that one line, oh, you know where it's listed in its entirety? Where is it listed in its entirety? No, it's not Matthew 1 or 2, it's Luke 3. And if you start with God and you count all the way down to Jesus, it is, somebody do the 77 names from God to Jesus. It's just a beautiful thing. And there's all kinds of beautiful stuff in that genealogy. It's a wonderful genealogy. It's Luke chapter 3. I better, you know, I said that, and I don't want somebody to say Luke 3, and I'm wrong. It could be Luke 19. It's not, yeah, but, it's three. okay, it is 3. Okay, I'm glad I, I, I just don't want to tell somebody something incorrect, and then they've got a brain squiggle that's because I said something wrong. Okay, however, rather than focusing solely on that one line, he notes that this mystery was unknown to all. This is understood by his words that it was not made known to the sons of men. This term, sons of men, is speaking of all of those born into the stream of humanity. Jesus is often called the Son of Man, thus declaring that he is truly and fully human. I can't find my pen. I laid it down where? I did. Oh, okay. Because I I've got a um, I've got something I need to make a note on, and uh, so I've got that there. And then I also have. I'm sorry. I just find typos ten years after I type something, and I don't want it to go into the PDF form when Wade does that and it be wrong. And Wade is man. That guy is unbelievable. He's done so much for this church. It, it, Wade, it, it, thank you, Wade. I'll just stop at that. Jesus is often called the Son of Man, thus declaring that he is truly and fully human. Paul uses the term this way to then make a distinction between the general stock of humanity and those chosen for a particular purpose. All born into humanity are sons of man, everybody. But sons of men, but some sons of men have been granted particular abilities. This is seen in the next clause. The words, as it has now been revealed, mean that what was unknown as a mystery has now become known by the means of revelation. 
Paul didn't say that in the past ages the mystery had not been revealed. Instead, he said that it was not made known. The mystery does not come about by mere logic or mental training. Instead, it only came about through revelation by the Spirit. Paul's words, by the Spirit. In the book of John, Christ spoke of how the Spirit testified of him. That's in John Burke. That's correct. That's correct. Okay, so we're going to go to 5. And I wrote down 539, so if I'm wrong, then I'm going to have to uh, correct that. Um, no, it's 39. What did he say in 29? I want to see if what you said. Um, uh, no, it is. It's 39. So make it change the squiggle in your brain. Um, uh, but you got the right chapter, which is great. You search the scriptures for in them. You think you have eternal life. And these are they which testify of me. Okay. And then what did he say? You gave another one. Only 529, you said? Okay. So that's John 529. The words speak of Jesus. And at the very end of that same chapter, it says this, by the way. Where is it? Five. Um, we'll start in 45. Do not think that I shall accuse you to the Father. There is one who accuses you, Moses, in whom you trust. For if you believe Moses, you would believe me, for he, Moses, wrote about me. But if you do not believe his writings, how will you believe my words? And then he goes on and says this in John 15. He says in John 15, where is it, 26? But the, when the Helper comes, whom I shall send to you from the Father, the Spirit of truth who proceeds from the Father, he will testify of me, and you also will bear witness because you have been with me from the beginning. Who is he speaking to? Everybody? He's speaking to the disciples. We have not been with Jesus from the beginning. He was speaking to the disciples. John 15 is one of those passages you have to be really careful about dividing up. You've got to be really careful because there are times where he's speaking about everybody. And there are times when he is speaking to the disciples. And people claim all the time stuff that belongs to the disciples alone and do not pertain to us. And they claim that stuff and they go around saying things that are not correct theologically. Okay, John 15, be careful with it. Be careful with everything in that particular section of John, okay? Because if you go pulling out the wrong thing that Jesus is saying and applying it to yourself, you can go around thinking you're a lot more important than you really are as far as that particular issue that he's talking about. Not that you're not an important human being. Everybody is. That's not what I'm saying. I'm talking about in the relation to the issue that he is bringing up. Be careful with that, okay? The first two is speaking of the Spirit-inspired Old Testament, John 5, 39. Yes, 39. Uh, the second speaks of the coming Spirit-inspired New Testament. The Old Testament certainly gives types and shadows and even hints as to what was coming, but it could not have been understood without the further revelation of the Spirit, the New. And this revelation of the Spirit was, as he says, Paul, to his holy apostles and prophets. Okay, once again, that's just kind of a confirmation that John 15, whatever I just read you, is not speaking about everybody. You've got to be careful with John 15, and like I said, all of that general area where Jesus is speaking in that discourse, be careful with it, okay? It's better to just say, I'm going to read it, and I'm, you know, I'm not going to go claiming anything, than to start claiming individual things that you could be wrong on. That's the best approach, and then just let it sink in and read it, and then do a study, and you know, try to figure it out listen to commentaries that may be proper analysis of it, because there's all kinds of stuff that people quote out of that chapter that are just wrong. Is the okay. Greek any better? 
I don't think so. I haven't read it. I can't say, but I think it's just, you know, John is really, and I don't mean to say this, you know, he's just, it's confusing. If you've ever read one John and he says one thing and then he seems to completely contradict himself later in the same epistle. And you're like, what is he talking about? It's just very hard to mentally grasp because he's making almost like a circle on things as he winds his way through there. And, you, you know, if, if you're confused about one John, go read the one John commentary. And I hope it'll unconfuse you because it took me a lot of thinking to get through that book. It just is hard. It's like almost like reading Revelation. Revelation is all future. And people get all dogmatic about it when, in fact, you can't be dogmatic about it because it hasn't happened. We get a broad, general idea of what's going to happen in the future. And we have no idea who the ten horns are, right? We don't know who they are. But people make all kinds of, this, this, and this, and this. And how do they have no idea? It says there's going to be a beast that's going to have seven heads and ten horns. And, okay, well, when it happens, the people of the world will know. They will know. The people that need to know will search it out and they'll figure it out. But right now, all we can do is say, these are beasts of the past. This is kind of a pattern. We can get an idea of what these heads are, what these horns are. But we can't know who they are. We, can't, we, we simply can't do it. Okay, so, and John is kind of like that. It's real hard to read, and you got to be careful with it. So, he wrote both. yeah, he wrote both. Yeah, well, he wrote that, and he wrote one John, and two John, and three John, and Revelation. And so, and there's a reason why Jesus picked him. There's a reason why he picked Paul for what he wrote. Everybody is picked for a certain reason. Their style is for us to maybe have to think harder. Maybe, I don't know. I, you know, I don't know, but uh, John when you get into 1 John and you read it, and if you just read it at the beginning, you think, oh, see, I can't lose my salvation. And then you turn to another verse and you say, well, that looks like I can lose my salvation. I mean, it's hard, you know, but there's always a reason why he says what he does. And let me tell you, oftentimes it's out of a big context and you got to go back and you got to say, oh, I see. It's, it's tough. Okay. So if anybody has 1 John mastered, I would love to read that commentary. Okay, I, I hope that mine is as good as it can get. I don't know that. I'm just, you know, I did what I did and it's out there. But it's a hard book to read. Okay, um, let's see. Holy uh, Apostles and Prophets. The word holy is given to contrast the sons of men. Okay, so you've got the sons of men and then you've got his holy apostles and prophets. Okay, only those chosen by God and granted this special revelation could then turn around and reveal it to the world for an understanding of what God has done. Only they. They are chosen. They are filled with the Spirit in a unique way. God is inspiring them. Peter explains kind of how it happens. He says, men of God are uh, carried along by the Holy Spirit. He uses a word that sounds almost like sailing. Okay, they're being filled with the Spirit, and they're, they're penning out the words of God. That doesn't happen anymore. I'm sorry. People think that they're speaking the words of God in that way. They are not. Okay, that was for these people to do and to seal the word of God. And we now live by faith in what God has presented. Okay, uh, the holy apostles and prophets were granted this insight at a particular point in time and for a particular reason, to reveal the word of God to the world. They proclaimed the word, the word was recorded, and which is now our New Testament. And then the revelation stopped. Let me put a mark here so I don't forget where I am. And then the revelation stopped. In the pages of the Bible, we have all of the information necessary for our life and practice as Christians. No further revelation is required, nor should more revelation be anticipated. I know that's hard to accept if you've been in a charismatic church, 
And I've talked to some people in the not too uh, distant past, very recently, that attended spirit-filled churches and were filled with the spirit at a certain time in their age. And they get prophetic revelation. And I'm sorry, I feel bad for them. I'm sorry that people feel that way. That's what they believe. That's what It's cheap theology. I was talking to somebody and explaining why it is that way. It's cheap because you don't have to study. You don't have to do the hard work. You don't have to. If you have that type of an attitude, you don't need to know at all what the Bible says because the Lord's going to reveal it to you. Okay? It's not a good way of conducting your life and practice in Christ. This is where you get that. It's right here in the Word of God. Um, got time. Life application. Beware of those who say, the, oh, here it is. The Lord has given me a prophetic word. Unless he repeats and then explains a passage of Scripture, he is to be shunned. God has revealed his will, past tense. He has to us in the pages of the Holy Bible. Okay? I'm sorry. I, I will never get past the, Unless suddenly I fall on the floor and start speaking in tongues and start uttering out prophetic revelation, I'm not going to accept that it's anything but real hard work. This guy did the hard work when he did Ruth. He did a marvelous job of it. Go watch him. It's a nine series. Was it nine? Nine. Nine sermons. And it was, it was very good. And it wasn't easy, was it? Putting that together is not easy work, right? Okay. And he did it with cowboy boots on. It's a requirement at the cowboy church. You have to do your sermons in cowboy boots. Okay. I don't know if that's true or not. Three, six. Oh, wait. Burke's got something. Guy said, uh, I don't have to study for my sermon. He saw this guy making notes on the, you know, the train waiting. Okay. And he says, I don't have to do that. God's going to reveal it to me when I get up in the pulpit. And he answered back, and I think it was B.R. Lakin. He says, he may answer you back, but I go by my notes, and I'm doing it with what the Bible says. That's know, right. Notes, not just what comes to What mind. comes to mind. Yeah, I don't know if you heard what Burke said, but he was saying that he was conversation between two people, and one of them was just saying, well, the Lord will give me the word when I get up in the pulpit. Well, that is somebody that's confident in his own abilities. Yeah. That's what that is. He's a good speaker. He's a good order, orator. I am not. I stumble over my mouth 90% of the time. There's hardly a sentence that comes out of my mouth that I don't have a, you know, a B or a P that's repeated or whatever. Okay. I have no confidence in my ability, but I have all the confidence in the world and the word of God. And the second person that Burke spoke about said exactly that. This is where I get my theology from. And this is where my presentation is going to come from. If it's coming from the top of a person's head, it's not worth listening to. I don't care how eloquent it is. I don't care how motivational it is. If it's not based on the word of God, it is not worth listening to. It's not. It's okay. like a student who goes in to take a test and they didn't study. But yeah. they pray and say, oh God, please show me. No. No, that that's right. That's not how it works. God no. says study. Study. Study to show yourself approved. That's I know right. somebody that has a daughter that uh, climbs trees. And can I tell this? He's not paying attention. Can I tell the story? Oh, what? Trusting Jesus, trusting Jesus. Oh, yeah, that's hilarious. Uh, okay, he's got a daughter that uh, was climbing a tree. And he's always telling, you need to trust in Jesus. And, oh, I trust Jesus. And so she's up in the tree. And as she's climbing, she's going over this really scary part. And she's saying, trust in Jesus, trust in Jesus. <laughs> and he said, I think I need to talk to my daughter. <laughs> okay, it, that's not exactly what I meant. Okay. <laughs> So, and that's what they're doing. That's exactly what they're doing. They're just taking their life, which is supposed to be, you know, based on an understanding of the word and saying, trust in Jesus, trust in Jesus, and off they're going to fall because they don't know the word of God. So it, it's a perfect example. Okay, perfect. Okay, um, so um, 
Where why? Okay, life application beware. Oh, I've already said that God has revealed his word to us in the pages of the Holy Bible. Okay, next verse, three six. This mystery is that through the gospel, Gentiles are heirs together with Israel, members together of one body, and sharers together in the promise in Christ Jesus. Okay, this is all jumbled up, but I think it says the same thing that the Gentiles should be fellow heirs of the same body and partakers of his promise in Christ through the gospel. That's the mystery that Paul has been getting to explain right there. I'll read it again. That the Gentiles should be fellow heirs of the same body and partakers of his promise in Christ through the gospel. There is one body, and if there's one body, then there is one gospel. If there is one gospel, then it is not what hyperdispensationalism teaches. Leave that church if you're in one of them. It is very poor theology. Okay, this is the explanation of the mystery, which Paul has been referring to in the previous verses. It is the revelation of that which would have been and continued to be unimaginable, even unthinkable to the Jews. So much so, I think we've read this. Did we read this in the past? Uh, I, I said it somewhere. Maybe I read it last week, or we got to go to Acts chapter. Um, oh, I'm going the wrong way, Charlie. Uh, when Paul is speaking to um, the people in Israel, and it says, um, I think it's in 20 or 21, somewhere around there, he's uh, speaking to the people. And um, okay, that's not it. Where is it? He's bear witness to them. Farewell, 25. That's just, okay, Agrippa. No, that's too far. I got to go back a little bit. It's when uh, Paul was speaking to the people out in the, um, uh, oh, yeah, it's right here. And I was right. Well, 22. It says, it, this is how unthinkable it was for the Jews to even consider this. Now it happened when I returned. He's talking to the Jews that have been accusing of, of things. And the Romans had to come and take him by force or they would have torn him apart. And then he stopped and said, I want to speak to the people. So he's speaking to the people about his conversion to Christ. And they're listening real quietly for, you know, half a chapter. And then he says in verse 17, now it happened when I returned to Jerusalem and was praying in the temple that I was in a trance. And so I'm saying to me, make haste and get out of Jerusalem for they will not receive your testimony concerning me. So I said, Lord, they know that in every synagogue I imprisoned and beat those who believe on you. And when the blood of your martyr Stephen was shed, I also was standing by consenting, standing by consenting to his death and guarding the clothes of those who were killing him, saying, I'm, I'm with these guys. I don't understand it. Then he said to me, depart, for I will send you far from here to the Gentiles. Ooh. Oh boy, this is how unbelievable that would have been to them. It says, and they listened to him until this word, Gentiles, and then they raised their voices and said, away with such a fellow from the earth, for he is not fit to live. Then as they cried out and tore off their clothes and threw dust into the air, they're making a big hoo-ha. That's how unbelievable the message of the gospel going to the Gentiles was to the people of Israel. And to this day, if you go into Israel, go into an Orthodox area and say that I am a son of Abraham through faith, they'll probably kill you. They'll probably kill you, okay? They, they cannot even comprehend it. It's not even in their mind that they are not only chosen people of God and nobody else. That's how unbelievable it is to them, okay? So um, the mystery, it was uh, Paul 
has been referring to in the previous verses. It is a revelation of that which would have been unheard to and continues to be unimaginable, even unthinkable, Acts 22, to the Jews. They had been then, they had been the selected and chosen people. They had received the oracles of God. They had been the stewards of the law. It was promised that Messiah would come through them. Because of these and a thousand other reasons, they assumed that they alone would be the recipients of the promises of God. But they were wrong. And let me see if I cite it here. I don't think I do. You know, Isaiah says several times. Even Moses says it. Rejoice, O Gentiles, with his people. Right. Says it right in Deuteronomy. And then Isaiah specifically says, it is too small of a thing that my message will go out to you. It'll go out to the Gentiles as well. Paraphrase. Okay, that's not exactly what he says, but it says that. And he mentions the Gentiles at least two and maybe three more times in the book of Isaiah, explicitly telling them. But it was unthinkable to them. They thought it must mean something else than what Isaiah is explicitly saying because they could not comprehend it, okay? So Paul now explains this with the words that the Gentiles should be fellow heirs. Everything that was promised as coming to the Jews would likewise be shared by the Gentiles. There was no, as Paul says, greater inheritance for the Jews them for the Gentiles. I don't think Paul said that. I think I was stressing it with my quote, so Paul didn't say that. There was no greater inheritance for the Jews than for the Gentiles. He next says that the Gentiles would be of the same body. Both Jew and Gentile would be a part of the same organism which God is building in Christ. We talked about that last week, living stones and etc. They would be equal members of the house of God without distinction. No distinction. There's a difference but no distinction. A Jew is a Jew, a Gentile is a Gentile. A male is a male, a female is a female. Sorry, Google. That's just the way it is. But there is no distinction, okay? Thirdly, Paul says that the Gentiles would be partakers of his promise in Christ through the gospel. This means that every honor and blessing bestowed upon one would be bestowed upon the other. The sealing of the Holy Spirit, which came upon one, would also be granted to the other. And it actually happened the first time in Acts 10. Remember that, Cornelius? And then they said, oh my gosh, the same spirit that fell on us has fallen on them. Yeah. So it's right there. It's right in black and white. And this ceiling is the authorization to receive the fullness of what God has planned for his people and is given in full measure to all who come to Christ. Further, none of these points which Paul makes come directly through the Jew. The Jews were not required to become Jews before receiving the honors, okay? Instead, they received them apart from this earthly badge of distinction. This is seen in three words which Paul chose to use in order to describe the state of the Gentiles who were in Christ. They revealed that the Gentiles hold the status of being joint heirs in a joint body and jointly partaking of that which is granted. So, so particular is Paul in his choice of wording here that two of the three descriptive words are unique to the New Testament and to classical Greek. In other words, Paul probably made these words up just to get his point across. Paul had to invent words to show the results of the outstanding plan of God which is revealed in this mystery. There are a certain number of words in the New Testament that are not found anywhere in any classical Greek writing. And how do they know what the meaning of words are in the Greek? It's because they read the classical Greek writings to make sure. That's how they knew. 
They've got all of these classical Greek writings, and if there's a word that they don't, they're not sure about, and that's what Vincent's word studies does. He goes out and he reads all these Greek texts, and he understands from the context what people were thinking at that time. And then he can say, with 99% certainty, this word means this in this context, okay? But there are some words that are not. However, it doesn't mean that they're not understandable because they are, they'll take like a root word and they'll build upon it, okay? I'm, I can't think of anything in English we do that with, but we might have, you know, just, uh, I don't know, more bigger-er, okay? That's a word. That's more bigger-er. Well, you go to the word big and you know what that means and you know er is superlative and er-er is super, super, superlative and so you add more onto it and it's a super superlative. You know what that word means. Well, that's how they know what these words Paul said. It's just a root. And then he added onto it to make it understandable uh, about what he is talking about, okay? They didn't need to go to the classical Greek words to figure it out, okay? So Paul had to invent words to show the results of the outstanding plan of God, which is revealed in this mystery. It is solely through the work of Christ that either category is granted this status, solely. The sealing of the Holy Spirit can only come through his work, Christ's work. When it comes, the person regardless of earthly status, is brought into the family of God. I hate when I do that. Gender mismatches. I type things and they don't get caught. I said, the person, regardless of their, it's his. Okay, so I, I'll correct that before it gets put into the big thing. Okay, life application, and we will be done because we don't have time for another one. Um, three, seven next week. Uh, two important, we did five verses today, so we yeah. did pretty well. Um, Two important points of doctrine can be deduced from this single verse. The first is that though there is no distinction in Christ between Jew and Gentile, the two categories still remain. Gentiles cannot be joint anything with Jews if the two become one in personal category. Does everybody get that? He says, joint heirs, well, if we're the Jews that have replaced the Gentiles, or if we're Jews that have come in with the Gentiles, then there wouldn't be joint anything. There'd just be the Jews, as R.C. Sproul claimed. That's not how it works. The word joint heirs means that there must be a distinction between Jew and Gentile. Okay? That's the first. Gentiles cannot be joint anything with Jews if the two become one in personal category. Further, the idea that Gentiles need to either convert to Judaism or to hold to the precepts of the law, which originally established their faith, is proven false. One category, Jew or Gentile, cannot be a joint anything with another if they become the same in life walk. Gentiles remain Gentiles. Jews remain Jews. And that which makes a person one or another is not imposed on the other. Doesn't Abraham pose problem? For what? Well, that's true. And that's the point that Paul makes. Yeah, Abraham, but you know what? And that's when I talk to a Jewish person about Jesus, I always go back. I don't care. I, I will sometimes, if I talk to one, I'll say, I'll never talk to you about this again if you allow me to do it this time, because most don't want to hear it even once. So that's my promise. And they say, okay. And I say, what do you want to talk about? You tell me the subject, righteousness or holiness or I, I, whatever they pick. I'll give them a couple categories. They'll always say righteousness. It just seems like the thing they always ask for. But even if they ask for a different category, I will always take them back to Abraham. Always. Because they don't know that I'm pulling that on them. I'm just taking them back to Abraham and I'll say, well, your thing about this is answered here. Okay? Faith as opposed to law. Well, was Abraham saved by faith or was he saved by observance of a law, which came in Genesis 17? So it doesn't matter what the issue is. I always take them back to Abraham. 
to show that just because they're Jews doesn't mean they are sons of Abraham by faith. And it always works out better that way to me. But it's a good question. It's, yeah. It's the biggest hole. It's the biggest hole. Abraham is the biggest hole if they think it through. And Paul has done the work for us. All we have to do is show what Paul says about those issues. Heavenly Father, we thank you for the chance to come into your glorious presence and to share in your word. And Lord, we certainly lift up those people at the beginning of this class and then a couple that were mentioned during the class that uh, have got some real troubles or that are some are getting better, some are having better times, and we pray for that. We thank you for that, praise you for it. And Lord, we just ask that you give comfort to the downhearted and the afflicted and uh, just continue to show yourself wonderful in our eyes as we pursue you through your word. And we have no doubt that that will happen. When we open your word, we will see you as wonderful. So thank you for your word. We thank you for the chance to get into it together and to share it. And Lord, please be glorified in how we live our lives in the days ahead. Please help us to do that so that we don't bring any discredit upon you. And may it be so, and may it be, we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Uh...